Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Biblical Studies podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my honor to be in dialogue with Dr. Safwat Marzouk. We'll be discussing his newly published book, Egypt as a Monster in the Book of Ezekiel, published in Tübingen, Germany by Moore Seebeck, 2015. Dr. Marzouk is Associate Professor of Old Testament at the Union Presbyterian Seminary. Safwat, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. It's wonderful being with you, Ari. Thank you for having me. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult? Absolutely. I would love to share some of my background. Um, I grew up in Egypt. Um, in a village about four hours south of Cairo in the region of Elminia. And um, uh, not like many uh, uh, areas in Egypt, this village was actually predominantly Christian. Um, So as for our uh, listeners, uh, Egypt is predominantly Muslim nation uh, with a Christian minority and a very small Jewish minority as well. And... Um, growing up in this context um, has in some ways uh, created a space where I was in touch with more Christians than with Muslims, except at school. Um, And in some ways, even though that seemed like sheltering at the beginning of my upbringing, um, that has also made me long for... um, interreligious dialogue and what it means to be a minoritized uh, Christian in a predominantly Muslim context, uh, reading scriptures and thinking about the religious other. Um, So that experience of um, being in a predominantly Christian context, but also knowing that Christians are still a minority has kind of shaped some of my uh, ways of thinking about uh, interreligious dialogue and how to engage majority minority kind of uh, uh, discourse grew up going to church almost every day uh, reading the bible a lot and uh, so it was kind of like becoming a bible scholar in some ways I was prepared for it uh, uh, from childhood Um, but obviously it's different reading uh, the bible in like a religious context than reading it in an academic context where more critical questions start to arise. And that, um, in some ways, what happens when I went to the seminary in Cairo, um, I went to a Presbyterian seminary in Cairo to become a pastor. But then um, towards the end of my uh, undergrad, which was in theology, I started asking questions about what it means to read the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible as a Christian Egyptian. Um, and uh, that question uh, took me on this long journey of grad school in Egypt and then uh, in the U.S. Um, 
pursuing this question even as I teach and and research. Uh, so that's a little bit of uh, the background that has uh, shaped um, my interest in in the Bible. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Yeah, so um, um, part of that journey that I took on in terms of um, what it means to read the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible as a Christian Egyptian, uh, where Egypt is portrayed in multiple ways and various ways, um, Egypt is portrayed as a place of refuge in some biblical texts. Egypt is also portrayed negatively as the house of slavery. Um, as we read in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, it's kind of the predominant image. Um, I felt a little bit of dissonance between entering into the uh, sanctuary or the worship spaces or reading the Bible. And I was trained in the church to read the Bible through the lens of the Israelites. Uh, because that's how the Bible became uh, my scripture in some ways. Um, but then you, I would go to school, and then we learn about Egyptian history, and we're like, you know, are asked to like, or invited to uh, to like um, learn about the pharaonic history and um, um, own this kind of Egyptian aspect of one's identity. So I always felt that kind of tension between reading the Bible in which Egypt predominantly portrayed in a negative way. And then uh, in the public space, I am um, um, embracing the Egyptian identity. So I started to wonder about that gap between the religious identity and the political identity. Um, and um, during my studies in the master's degrees and then also my doctorate at Princeton Seminary, um, a lot of that, a lot of those questions start to crystallize. Um, so um, I've been interested in how the other is portrayed in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, and most specifically Egypt. So in various conversations with my mentors and advisors at Princeton Seminary and during coursework, I started to, in some ways, narrow down my question um, to uh, start to tackle that question on what it means to read um, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible as a Christian Egyptian when Egypt is portrayed in a negative way. And um, during one of uh, my seminars, I started to reflect on this portrayal of Egypt as a monster, the portrayal of Egypt as this uh, force of chaos, uh, which is, by the way, not only in the book of Ezekiel, but also appears in other parts in the Old Testament as well. Um, so that kind of like started to um, give me a more concrete way to wrestle with the big question that I was thinking about, which that conflict of uh, religious identity and a political identity as I approach the biblical traditions. Um, and I started to have a deep interest in the combat myth, and which we can talk about in a bit, um, and also um, Egypt as a monster, and this portrayal of Egypt in that negative sense, and the defeat of Egypt, and the dismemberment of the body of the monster. Um, so that took me on a journey then into monster theory, and what makes the monster a monster, and how this could help in unpacking the question about what it means to read the Old Testament as a Christian Egyptian, and what should I do as a reader with this conflict in identity 
uh, around the political and the religious aspects of uh, my identity as a reader of the Bible. What aspects of the book of Ezekiel first piqued your interest? One of the interesting things about the book of Ezekiel is uh, how bizarre it is as a book. Uh, the book is filled with visions, um, filled with sign acts. Um, the book captures um, uh, the realities of the people of Judah um, during the last decades of its history prior to the Babylonian exile uh, in ways that are not present in other biblical books. Uh, the, um, the book, in some ways, um, um, captures and embodies and gives voice to trauma uh, in ways that are quite unique in the biblical traditions. Um, so as much as many readers shy away from the violence that is present in the book of Ezekiel, I think the book also in some ways invites us to think about what it means to be present in such a catastrophic time in the history of uh, the Judean nation and um, what it means to be exiled, what it means to be a forced migrant, what it means to see the institutions of, uh, of uh, one's nation kind of collapse, the temple and the, the capital and the political independence and so on. So Ezekiel is uh, giving a voice for the trauma and the chaos that the people have experienced at the time of the exile, which, which ties really well with this question around uh, the monster, which ties really well with the question around the portrayal of Egypt as a monster, because um, one of the things we actually know about horror, um, horror films, uh, they tend to peak at times when there is disruption, social or political disruptions or economic ones. So if, if we even think about um, the in the 30s, when one of the first waves of horror films that was uh, related to the, the Great Depression. And in the 60s and the 70s, because of uh, the Vietnam War and, and the beginning of the Cold War and so on. And in our era now, the peak of horror films have to do with um, um, uh, the anxieties that are arising because of mass communication and becoming this global village and so on. So Ezekiel became a, a very important uh, book for me uh, because he speaks about Egypt as a monster and because he speaks about Egypt as a monster in a time of crisis, in a time of experiencing terror and horror. Um, so it became a place that uh, brought my both interests in some ways of what it means to read the Old Testament as a Christian Egyptian, because Ezekiel has a lot to say about Egypt, but at the same time, how Ezekiel speaks about Egypt in ways that relate to the question of identity, um, um, how um, the Judean identity at that time of the exile was in question, and how that was impacted by Egypt's influence, political influence, uh, on Judah at that time. So the book kind of brought um, um, ways to think about Egypt in the Old Testament um, that have to do with monster theory and also what it means to read and uh, reflect on scripture in times of crisis, in times of trauma. How does your study recontextualize the relationship between ancient Judah and ancient Egypt? 
One of the things that scholars have um, uh, noticed and wrote on in relation to the book of Ezekiel for a long time uh, is that the time of Ezekiel um, was a, a time in which the kingdom of Judah was caught between uh, the powers to the east, which um, um, would be Babylon, and then um, uh, the power to the southwest would be Egypt. And um, one of the interesting things is that, um, and, and this is one of the reasons, and we will talk a little bit more about this, of course, as we discuss the book more, uh, one of the reasons why scholars uh, argued that um, why Ezekiel portrays Egypt as a monster was because of the political alliance between Judah and Egypt during the time of Zedekiah against the Babylonians, which, I mean, that is a very reasonable explanation, and I think it's one of the explanations that I uh, also support, but I push the question a bit to ask, but what was the significance of that alliance for Ezekiel? What did it stand in for? What did it symbolize? And that in some ways was a crucial question to ask, what about a monster that would attract Ezekiel to use that, that metaphor to capture the political alliance? But, but there is something really interesting about the prophets, especially um, uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel in the way they talk about the relationship between uh, Egypt and Judah. Uh, but for the sake of our focus, uh, when it comes to Ezekiel, Ezekiel obviously sees Egypt as a threat. But for the most part, Ezekiel sees Egypt as a threat to the relationship between um, Yahweh and uh, the Judeans. But there is something really interesting where Egypt is not actually, like at least in that very small period of time, right before the Babylonian exile, Egypt um, was not the superpower, right? Babylon was the superpower. Um, and Egypt and Judah were not in some ways enemies. Like Egypt is not seen as a threat because Egypt is just trying to reproduce its uh, its hegemony. Maybe obviously like any kind of power would like to extend their hegemony, but at least from even what Ezekiel and the prophets say is that what's at stake there is a political alliance um, against Babylon. So surprisingly, Egypt is not, the, the superpower, yet it gets all the attention from the prophet Ezekiel, while Babylon is actually portrayed as a tool that Yahweh uses or the, the, the Lord or the divine uses in order to bring judgment over Judah. So it's a, it's a really interesting um, and kind of um, um, uh, like mind-boggling in some ways because like you you would expect Ezekiel to condemn Babylon because this is where he is exiled this is where he's experiencing his life as a forced migrant but he actually condemns Egypt and the political alliance between Judah and Egypt um for obviously some theological reasons that we will uh, will explore but the relationship between Judah and Egypt at the time of Ezekiel was more of an alliance rather than enmity, as we see would see in other uh, times in the biblical era, um, like the book of Exodus, for example. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? So the book asks the question, um, 
why does Ezekiel portray Egypt as a monster? And obviously, um, the only way to answer that is to infer that from Ezekiel's book, from the writings of Ezekiel. So um, I obviously, like all of us, I'm an active agent in making the meaning and answering this question. We don't have access to Ezekiel himself to answer that question. So the the question that that occupies the book is what about what about the category of the monster that makes Ezekiel use it in order to speak about Egypt in his book? And unlike other prophetic books, Ezekiel actually more elaborate in his portrayal of Egypt as a monster. We know that the portrayal of Egypt as a monster takes place in the book of Isaiah in a couple of places and uh, in some of the Psalms. But Ezekiel has um, uh, two long episodes in chapter 29 and chapter 32 in which Egypt is portrayed as a monster and Yahweh or the Lord uh, battles against um, uh, this monster, defeats it, dismembers its body, and then it ends with putting this Egypt power in check. Uh, so that it would not pose any danger or threat on Judah and Judah's relationship with uh, the divine. Um, so the, that, that was kind of the main question, is why does Ezekiel portray Egypt as a monster? And in order to answer that question, I wanted to um, engage what other scholars have said um, um, and uh, push a little bit uh, the, the the answer uh, based on the peculiarity of Ezekiel's discourse for himself. So, for example, as I mentioned earlier, scholars said that Ezekiel portrays Egypt as a monster or has all of these oracles against Egypt in chapters 29 to 32 because of the political alliance. But then my, my research tried to push uh, into the symbolism of the political alliance. Why does Ezekiel um, condemn the political alliance and how does that political alliance uh, lend Ezekiel to talk about Egypt as a monster? Other scholars said, well, Egypt is portrayed as a monster because of the memory of the Exodus. But when we look at how Ezekiel remembers the Exodus, Ezekiel does not talk about oppression. Ezekiel does not talk about um, um, enslavement. Actually, Ezekiel talks about the Israelites in Egypt worshiping Egyptian idols and unable to leave Egyptian idols behind them. Or they have committed adultery where he uses that kind of uh, illicit relationship metaphor as a way of talking about breaking the covenant. But when Ezekiel uses uh, the idolatry or the adultery metaphor, he is actually trying to capture something about the, the initial stages of the relationship between Egypt and Israel that has not been captured even in the book of Exodus itself. In the book of Exodus, the people of Israel do not worship Egyptian idols. They are oppressed. Uh, so, But Ezekiel doesn't talk about oppression. Ezekiel does not talk about enslavement. Ezekiel talks about Egypt as a threat that um, uh, transgresses the boundary uh, between order and chaos, between um, 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 Israel's uh, sole allegiance uh, and alliance to Yahweh, to the Lord, to the divine. And, and therefore, for Ezekiel, Egypt stands in for this chaos. It unleashes some sort of religious chaos in the life of Judah that makes Judah deviate 
away from its covenant with um, with the Lord. So I try to like um, um, you know engage what other scholars have said, but then push the question a bit further to um, to think about why a monster. And um, so the readers will um, um, you know like um, after the survey of biblical scholarship and um, I dedicate the chapter on what makes the monster a monster. And um, um, I leaned into a monster theory. I leaned into anthropological, psychoanalytical uh, perspectives um, to kind of make an argument about the monster and what makes the monster a monster is that it's not only otherness. Like sometimes we think that what makes the monster a monster or, or the thing that would come to our mind right away when we talk about monsters is their otherness. And that's true. The monster is the other embodied. But other theorists have helped us also to learn that sometimes what makes the monster a monster is also sameness, the shared sameness that um, is is horrifying. So either the Unheimlich, like in Freud's uh, discourse, or um, the abject in Julia uh, Kristeva's work, um, what makes them scary is how similar they are to the self. And I use that kind of um, uh, discourse in order to um, uh, explain why Ezekiel portrays Egypt as a monster. And I made the argument that what is horrifying for Ezekiel um, and what makes him portray Egypt as a monster is the loss of difference, the sameness, that the shared sameness, the shared identity uh, between Judah and Egypt, um, which then obviously Ezekiel um, um, appropriates the combat myth, the cows come from the ancient Near East, um, and then he uses that in order to highlight the otherness of Egypt, in order to recreate and reimagine a Judean identity away from, from Egypt. So the question is, why Ezekiel portrays Egypt as a monster? Um, I survey biblical scholarship, I lean into monster theory, and then I look into the combat myth in the ancient Near East, and then I have like three chapters on um, on the book of Ezekiel itself that have to do with the question around sameness, the question around otherness, and also how the oracles against Egypt end up by creating a geographical distance, whether symbolic or literal, between Judah and Egypt. This is a long answer to your question, but it's a summary of almost 300 page book. What is meant by the term chaos comp? So um, this term um, uh, has been coined by uh, scholars since Gunko. Um, um, and the term is referring to a combat myth. Um, and there are um, uh, there is a scholarly debate whether this is a genre or a motif. Um, in my um, in my my take on it is that I treat this more as a motif rather than a specific genre, um, where the motif or the theme, uh, to put it differently, the theme is speaking about a battle between um, uh, between the divine 
and uh, uh, a god who represents the sense of order um, and also possibly in some cases another deity um, um, that represents chaos that represents some sort of danger or a threat to the ordered world to the creation to uh, whether that manifests itself in political, social, economic crises, uh, or or uh, or the like, and we know uh, that motif from ancient recent literature, from Egypt. Um, we have um, in the funerary literature we have this kind of combat or battle between um, the god Seth, who is on the boat of the god Ra as Ra, you know, travels uh, in the subterranean parallel river to the Nile um, and defeats a giant snake called uh, Apip or Apophis. Um, and the defeat of that um, snake guarantees uh, the safety of uh, the Pharaoh and also the, the, the deity. And then the sun comes um, and rises and that reflects a sense of order. We know the motif also from Enuma Elish, um, from this Mesopotamian um, uh, mythological text that talks about theogony and also cosmogony, the birth of the gods, and also the creation of the universe and the kingship of um, um, the god Marduk, where Marduk uh, uh, battles against uh, Tiamat. And... Um, um, when Marduk, um, and by the way, I usually tell my students Marduk is different than Marzuk. Uh, my Zook is, Marzuk is my last name. <laughs> so uh, the god Marduk, uh, when Marduk defeats Tiamat, um, then creates the world and also establishes Babylon as the center of the universe. We know it from Ogaret, uh, Ogaretic texts from the 14th century BCE, um, where we have a uh, combat between the god Baal and the god Yam or Nahar, sea or river, and then the god Mot. Um, and, and so, so in some ways, in some ways, we know this motif from other ancient recent texts and has been appropriated in various places in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. So, um, this idea of uh, a god of order has been taken to. Uh, speak about how Yahweh or the Lord or the divine uh, battles and defeats Leviathan, for example. Um, we read about it in Psalm 74, Psalm 89, um, Isaiah 27, verse 1, Isaiah 51, uh, verses 9 and 10, and obviously Ezekiel 29 and uh, Ezekiel 32, where um, uh, Ezekiel portrays Egypt as a monster or Pharaoh as a monster, and then speaks about a battle in which uh, Yahweh defeats the monster and dismembers its body. What is the significance of Isaiah 37 referring to Egypt as Rahav? How does this help us understand the book of Ezekiel? Yeah, thank you for uh, referencing this verse because it's it's not a very it's not a very well known verse um, compared to uh, other parts in the book of uh, Isaiah. I think um, one of the things that um, um, Isaiah shares with Ezekiel is this portrayal of Egypt as a um, a monster uh, of chaos, uh, which appears as you mentioned in chapter thirty. 
verse 7, but also um, it appears in Isaiah uh, 51, 9, and 10. Um, and uh, scholars believe that Rahab is, um, is a poetic name that refers to Egypt as, is, as a monster, as, as a dragon. And part of the um, uh, reason likely for Ezekiel, for Isaiah as well, was the political alliance that was about to take place during the time of Zedekiah. So there, there seems to be some kind of like commonality here in terms of the representation of Egypt as this enemy that needs to be defeated. Um, and for both Ezekiel and Isaiah, they are trying to show that Judah is making a mistake by relying on Egypt because Egypt will not be able to save Judah from Assyria or from Babylon. So the common the common the commonality between um, Ezekiel and Isaiah has to do with this portrayal of Egypt as a monster that will be defeated and therefore is unreliable um, uh, ally for Judah at a time of uh, national crisis. Um, yeah. How does the book of Ezekiel advance our understanding of trauma and suffering? This is a hard question to answer because the readers are actually um, quite often horrified by the amount of violence that is present in the book of Ezekiel. And I said it's hard to answer because the book of Ezekiel doesn't capture that trauma from the perspective of the people, but rather from the perspective of Yahweh or God as a divine judgment. So, so when readers read the book, they feel like it is God who is bringing all this um, judgment and trauma on uh, the people. And therefore, sometimes we don't really try to read between the lines by um, trying to ask what would have made Ezekiel um, speak about God in this way? What would have made Ezekiel, similar to many other prophets, obviously, uh, capture the relationship between God and God's world in this way? And I, and I think if we just pause a bit and read Ezekiel's discourse as a prophetic genre in some ways, in the, in the sense that Ezekiel was trying to make sense of the trauma and the crisis of the exile. And um, from his priestly perspective, um, the land needed to be uh, purified. The land needed to um, uh, be sanctified because it has been defiled because of idolatry and because of the political alliance and because of the rebellion against Yahweh and the divine covenant and so on. Um, and defiling the temple. Um, but Ezekiel, if we kind of like suspend this idea of that God is bringing this, this as a judgment, if we just also read the text as Ezekiel trying to capture the pain and the suffering of the people of Judah who have been traumatized by the, by the imperial and colonial expansion of Assyria and then Babylon after them. Um, if we start to see the discourse rather than a divine judgment, but also as a prophetic agony, some sort of lament 
some sort of um, articulation of, of, of the pain that the people have been um, experiencing. Like the prophet Ezekiel himself was commanded by God not to even mourn his wife who died in chapter 24. There, there are these kind of like traumatic scenes about parents eating um, their children because of the siege and because of the, the, the economic and the food shortage, uh, the economic crisis and the food shortage during such a siege, which is proclaimed as a divine judgment on the people. But like the way I try to read it is to, to see how Ezekiel is actually capturing the horrors capturing the trauma, capturing the, the the terror that the people are experiencing and giving it a voice. Um, um, obviously for him, theologically speaking, he wanted to emphasize the divine um, sovereignty that um, that it, Babylon is not acting on its own. It's, it's the divine using it. And then um, other scholars um, who have used trauma theory in order to kind of like engage the prophets um, have argued that sometimes when people um, um, who have been traumatized, when they um, take some sort of agency and responsibility, that's one way of recovering from trauma. <clears throat> the only caveat I want to put um, in relation to that insight, though, is that this should not be used in order to blame the victim. Because sometimes people may kind of like use this this idea and and um, like the prophetic discourse and see people suffering and then say you're suffering because you have done something wrong because you have sinned and therefore God is bringing judgment on you. So it's really important to read the prophetic tradition and also raise questions about um, the the notion of justice and the notion of agency and the notion of um the, the the horror that the people have experienced and we get a glimpse of that in the book of ezekiel actually so in chapter 33 the people actually complain and say the ways of the lord are not just obviously ezekiel kind of like responds to them and tries to tell them no you have sinned and the lord is just yahweh is justified in what yahweh is doing and that's ezekiel's take on the event because he's trying to make sense of the trauma Maybe there were people who abused their power in Judah and the word of judgment would hold them accountable. But did everybody in Judah deserve that trauma? Did everyone deserve this uh, forced migration and, and horrors of imperial expansion and violence? I doubt it. And, and that's why we need to hear also the subtext that we have in Ezekiel where there is like a muted voice of protest that within Ezekiel, there is also a voice, are the ways of the Lord just? Uh, that, yes, the prophet engaged, but at the same time, um, sometimes those answers were not uh, completely uh, answered. The final point I want to say here is that Ezekiel doesn't just only uh, offer words of judgment and capture the trauma. He also captures the hopes for healing and restoration. And we see that in the second part of the book, starting with chapter 34, where um, Yahweh or the Lord or God um, comes as a shepherd and uh, in chapter 37 revives the dry bones where the people are saying, we are cut off, we are hopeless. And obviously with the beautiful image of the river that flows from underneath the temple and has trees and its leaves heal, 
the peoples and the nation and also even the non-human creation. So as much as the book captures the trauma and the horrors of exile and the forced migration, the book also captures the hopes and the longing for restoration and healing. What do you mean by geopolitical minimization? How is the book of Ezekiel's representation of Egypt an example of this? So just to give a bit of background to this uh, uh, section um, for our listeners, um, one of the things about um, uh, or the threads that I try to deal with or weave in my uh, book is this notion that the monster may be defeated, but never completely annihilated or obliterated. We see this in horror films, right? So you have the monster is in some ways uh, put in check or at bay, but they still you still get kind of like a glimpse that they will come back somehow. We see this also in the combat myth, which we talked about a while ago, where the defeated monster and the sense of chaos is never completely obliterated. They are defeated, they are put in check, but at the same time, they hover on the periphery. They still exist and haunt the sense of order that has been created uh, as a result of the defeat of the monster of chaos um, in the combat narrative. So when I was reading Ezekiel's discourse on Egypt as a monster, I also noticed that theme that I mentioned in horror films and the monster literature, that the monster may be defeated but never completely obliterated or annihilated, or that same theme that we see in, um, um, in the biblical traditions uh, and the ancient Eastern traditions about the monster or the waters of chaos um, are being put in uh, at bay, but not completely annihilated. I noticed the same motif in Ezekiel, but the way Ezekiel does it, he does it in two different ways. And one of them is the one that you have mentioned, which is this geopolitical minimization of Egypt in chapter 29, verses 14 to 16. So after the defeat of Egypt as a monster and after the dismemberment of the body of the monster, Yahweh through Ezekiel proclaims an oracle against Egypt that Yahweh will send Egypt into exile. And uh, obviously that didn't happen literally, but it's kind of like a literary motif to connect Egypt and Judah because Judah had also experienced this idea of exile. And after the 40 years, Yahweh will restore Egypt. But when Egypt is restored, Egypt will be restored to, to, towards its southern border. So in some ways, what Ezekiel is trying to do here by pushing Egypt southward, by making Egypt minimized uh, geopolitically as a small nation that is not going to lift up itself over against other nations, Egypt will not interfere in the business of Judah. So this kind of geographical symbolism is mapped out on like some sort of a literal map. He mentions specific places, but there is 
uh, like an underlying goal behind this that Egypt would not become a temptation for Judah anymore to rebel against Yahweh or against the Lord by entering into political alliances with Judah. So this geopolitical minimization is in some ways can be a decolonial discourse. This kind of decolonial discourse is um, um, making Egypt a smaller nation, small enough. It's not obliterated. It's not destroyed. It's actually restored. Um, but it does not have enough power to exercise an imperial force. Some scholars believe that this oracle actually comes from the Persian period. So it comes from a period after Ezekiel to reflect the Persian period and the Persian politics in which the Persians actually had control over Egypt, especially in the southern parts. And if, if this is true, then is Ezekiel's discourse anti-colonial or colonial, anti-imperial or imperial? Because if, if Ezekiel's discourse is trying to minimize Egypt in order to serve or reflect the Persian imperial discourse, then Ezekiel's discourse is imperial. But if Ezekiel's discourse is concerned with Judah and Egypt's attempt to interfere in Judah's, dis in Judah's um, uh, political realities, then that's a decolonial and anti-colonial discourse. And I, I think this is one of the fascinating things about the biblical traditions is that it depends on who's reading it and in what context. And that actually makes us as contemporary readers of the text to keep asking questions about these texts and who wrote them, what kind of worldview they were reflecting, and uh, what kind of power relations they were engaged in. And what about us? How do we enter into these texts? How do we think about our power relations as well in our contemporary contexts? On page 242, you write as follows. The task of biblical interpretation in an Egyptian Christian context has to tackle two issues. The first is to challenge those who take the text at face value without considering how the negative portrayal of Egypt in scripture has impacted the way Egyptian Christians think about who they are. The second task is to challenge those who reject the biblical text simply because they find it offensive to their political identity. Reading the Old Testament as a quote-unquote Christian, quote-unquote Egyptian, means living with an identity that holds a tension, a paradox. One is simultaneously a quote-unquote Egyptian and a quote-unquote Israelite in the light of the tension that Egyptian Christians experience when they encounter the Hebrew Bible, I believe that the way post-colonial criticism problematizes the binary opposition between self and other provides some insights for the process of constructing a hybrid identity. It also provides a third space in which paradoxical components of identity can coexist. In this case, the political and the religious facets of the Christian Egyptian identity. When one sees identity as something fluid and hybrid and recognizing that formulating an identity is an ongoing process, one is better able to live with the paradox. Can you elaborate on this observation for us? 
Absolutely. Um, this is a loaded paragraph. <laughs> uh, um, so um, my, my survey of how Christian Egyptians uh, interact with the Hebrew Bible and its portrayal of Egypt, especially the negative parts, because if you go on the street and ask Christian Egyptians, what is your favorite verse from the Old Testament that relates to Egypt? They will say, blessed be my people, Egypt, right? In Isaiah 19, 25. Um, because the Lord is embracing Egypt as a part of uh, God's people. But sometimes we don't know what to do with Egypt as a place of oppression or Egypt as a monster. So uh, I kind of like... Um, I did not do any like ethnographic research, but from my experience, I try to capture two trends that usually appear in uh, Christian Egyptian circles that relate to how Egypt is portrayed in the Hebrew Bible. And the first one is, is allegorization. People tended to allegorize Egypt. Egypt stands in for something else, and therefore these readers enter through enter the text through the lens of the Israelites. They identify with how Israel is portrayed in the Old Testament. And in doing so, they do this at the expense of being Egyptian because they just completely ignore the Egyptian facet of their identity and just read scripture through the lens of um, the Israelites. Um, which obviously also has like a, a really interesting question that I now think about even more in relation to superstitionism, right? And that's that's another question that we could, you know, I'm, I'm interested in exploring in the future. Um, um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll come to this. So that that's kind of like the first strand. It's it 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 highlights it highlights the uh, religious identity, the Christian identity, which ironically, is reading through the Israelites, because this is how the Old Testament became their scripture, right? Um, they became Christians, and therefore they enter through uh, reading through the lens of the Israelites. But that, that happens at the expense of the political identity, being Egyptian. The other group that I noticed, um, or uh, a trend, is that people who have a nationalistic fervent or are more aware and conscious of their Egyptian identity, the political aspect of their identity, they do not want to read the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, because why would I read uh, the texts that speak about my nation in a negative way? And this is actually common among uh, many Middle Eastern Christians, especially in light of um, um, the Arab-Israeli conflict since 1948. Um, that some people, um, 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 Christians and some Muslims, by the way, uh, also when they read the Quranic narratives uh, that involve uh, Egypt or other Middle Eastern nations and Israel in light of the political context, they also decided, well, I don't want to read these scriptures uh, because they speak about my nation in a negative way. So when they do that, I notice that they are embracing their political identity, but at the expense of their religious identity then the, how is the Bible going to be scripture for them is uh, is not really important anymore. Um, or there is a need for a more complex way, a more nuanced way to, to engage this uh, tension. So what I, what I was suggesting in this paragraph is, um, is an invitation 
uh, that emerged out of my own journey as a Christian Egyptian, where I kind of like swung between these extremes. I grew up reading the text allegorically, symbolically, and then I started also to reject the text because I felt it was offensive. And post-colonial criticism reminds us that identities are actually um, an unfinished project. Identities are an ongoing process. And identities are hybrid. They can be made up of um, things that can stand even in tension, even in uh, conflict with one another. So now I train myself as a reader of the Hebrew Bible to read the Hebrew Bible through the lens of the Israelites and also at the same time through the lens of how the other is portrayed, in our case here, Egypt. And that kind of like dance, the hermeneutical dance, moving between one perspective to the other, then starts to raise important ethical questions. And those ethical questions start to ask me, um, what do I do with my power? And what do I do with powerlessness? What do I do with the other? Who is the other for me here and now? Who is the other in the text and how they are constructed? Do they have a voice or are they muted? Are, are they experiencing violence or are they redeemed and restored? Um, what is my agency as a reader in envisioning a new reality? So out of this kind of like hybrid identity, unfinished uh, 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 process, then emerge some new ethical questions around um, my relationship with the other and the relationship of the other with me. And that I think uh, can help a lot in uh, interreligious dialogue, can help a lot in realizing that when I'm reading the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, I'm also reading the text of my Jewish neighbors. And um, my Jewish neighbor who is reading this text, they have a religious tradition that speaks about me as, as an Egyptian. Maybe Maybe not me as like like Safwat per se, obviously, but my my national identity, my heritage, in some ways is being constructed in in a similar way, like what New Testament scholars warn um, against, you know, the demonization of the Pharisees or the demonization of the Jews in the New Testament that led to anti-Semitism. Um, I also like reflect on how. Uh, the Egyptian, the Babylonian, the Assyrian, the, the Ammonite, the Moabite, the Philistine, all of these different others constructed in the Hebrew Bible and how that to a Jewish reader also invite them to think about the relationship between the self and the other. Sa same, same journey that I go through myself when I read the Hebrew Bible as a Christian Egyptian, I ask myself, how does the text construct me, construct myself, construct the self and how does it construct the other and how that kind of critical engagement could yield a um, a robust interreligious dialogue. How have shifts, trends, and changes in the contemporary Middle East in the past decades and in recent decades influenced the ways that Egyptian Christians read the Bible? What new questions are asked? In what ways are different questions about the Bible emerging as a response to a changing region? I think one of the things about uh, Christian Egyptian readers of the biblical traditions has always been shaped by a long-standing legacy of allegorization of the text. 
um, which obviously, <laughs> I mean, ironically, started in Alexandria um, and uh, among, you know, um, uh, Jewish communities in Egypt, like Philo, for example, and then Christian communities in Egypt, like Origin, and that kind of legacy just continues to find root in the Egyptian Christian imagination of reading the Bible. There is always this process of allegorization that takes place. And I, I, I think sometimes that kind of process of allegorization helps people to make sense of text that is um, that comes from a different place and time. And I am convinced like in some way that we cannot read the biblical traditions or ancient texts in general and make them relevant to our contemporary context without a, a level of symbolism or a level of um, uh, transposing the meaning from a historical context to another one. So I don't completely, to be honest, dismiss allegorical interpretation. I raise questions about it, but I also think, because it goes too far, but I still think that it has some relevance. Um, I, I started with this because I just wanted to note that uh, even though the political climate and the changes in Egypt over the past few decades and the whole region um, has brought in new questions, but there is still a lot of continuity with the past uh, traditions, especially uh, the allegorical interpretation. And this is not just peculiar to the Coptic Orthodox tradition. You will find that seeps in even among Protestant readers of the biblical traditions. But uh, obviously the Egyptian-Israeli wars of um, like 1967, 1973 has shaped many questions uh, with regard to how Christian Egyptians read uh, the Old Testament with its promise about the land, um, with uh, its portrayal of the conflict between Egypt and Judah and Egypt and Israel in the book of Exodus and in the prophetic traditions. And the question that I was just raising about, so how do I make sense of that as a Christian Egyptian reader in relation to the Old Testament? And um, um, like, as I mentioned earlier, people tend to either to allegorize or discard the text, but I, I also see that there are some uh, new, there is new interest in engaging the biblical traditions in ways that are more nuanced, that try to find a way forward other than allegorizing or uh, dismissing or discarding the text altogether uh, for the sake of uh, better understanding of the other and also the self. I think another important change uh, that um, um, has taken place is um, uh, obviously in light of the Arab Spring, there is more interest in uh, the discourse around social justice and how faith and politics relate to each other and uh, seeking the welfare of the city and being more involved uh, politically and being engaged politically, which we see a lot in uh, the political um, uh, kind of uh, theopolitical discourse in the prophetic and the biblical traditions. So there is a lot of interest uh, among Christians in Egypt around um, um, a, a, a biblical or a theological perspective and ethical perspective on the notions of justice and uh, peace uh, and the welfare of one's nation. Um, Given the exposure to many critical approaches uh, coming from the West, 
there are many people raising questions around the historicity of the Bible, the historicity of Adam and Eve, the historicity of the Exodus, the historicity of Jesus, and all of these questions are like in some ways bringing some kind of post-enlightenment questions uh, in an Egyptian, um, um, whether Christian or Muslim context. So people are actually raising critical questions around the biblical uh, traditions. Um, I, th I think that the last point I, I would want to mention there is there is also now interest in, uh, which I mean has been there, but has been done polemically, where, you know, reading the the bible and uh, in light of what what it means to be a minority and in light of what it how to relate to a muslim neighbor or a jewish neighbor who read the bible differently um it's not a very common thing but it's rising where there is a little bit of interest in dialogue and um uh, understanding each other's narrative and how people uh, represent uh, their faith traditions and their stories the more common approach is polemical and the more common approach is attacking the other um, and dismissing their their interpretation of their even their faith tradition themselves but there are glimpses of dialogue there are glimpses of um interest in um understanding one's faith tradition and also allowing the other to speak for themselves about their faith tradition. How has your personal identity shaped the way you personally relate to the Bible in general and the book of Ezekiel in particular? Yeah, as I as I mentioned, um, I grew up uh, going to church <laughs> every day in like Sunday school and junior high, and I was heavily involved in the church. So I, I grew up like reading the Bible for like uh, meditation and contemplative readings and, um, you know, like for ethical discernment, uh, quote unquote, and like grow up pre-conservative in my engagement with the Bible. And I'm grateful for that period in my life because it made me know the Bible really well, uh, maybe uh, well as in terms of content, but not in terms of interpretive process. Uh, but I was always curious, like I always had like um, interest in asking questions about uh, about the Bible. And uh, some of those were actually critical questions that I like, like I realize now how they have been formative, even though they were not prominent. Um, but going to seminary in Cairo and then um, um, in New York and, and at Union Seminary in New York and Princeton Seminary, um, that kind of like opened a whole new world of reading the Bible through a critical lens. Um, and I, I think like many uh, people who get exposed to critical scholarship, then they go into the swing of, so does the Bible matter anymore? Um, can I read it as a sacred text anymore? Is it still scripture? And I, I think I'm like, I've went through that journey of like reading it uh, through a more conservative lens to a more kind of like uh, uh, dismissive, critical, kind of even cynical uh, lens. And now I am kind of like uh, embracing a more um, um, hybrid uh, perspective, complex perspective, nuanced perspective that engages the Bible as a sacred text that is uh, central for theological reflection, 
um, and I um, teach it uh, so that um, we would understand how faith communities spoke about God in the past and how uh, their discourse about God continued to shape faith communities, Jewish, Christian, Muslim communities, and how it continues to shape us today. And that um, faithful reading of the biblical traditions also means that we read it critically, see how the Bible has been misused or abused, how the Bible has been used to liberate, how the Bible was used to resist, how the Bible was and continues to be used to oppress people, but also how the Bible and the biblical traditions are used in order to inspire liberation and restoration and healing and justice. Um, so I'm, I'm in a place where I am, um, um, I'm at peace with um, um, uh, holding attention between reading the Bible as a sacred text, but also reading it critically. And reading it critically is actually a way of taking it seriously um, as well. And in relation to the book of Ezekiel, I have um, uh, written a short commentary on the book of Ezekiel in Arabic. So I did continue to engage the book of Ezekiel after you know finishing my, my dissertation and my first book on Egypt as a monster. And I uh, teach it. And I still find the book of Ezekiel fascinating, again, because it's like a bizarre book. Uh, because it captures the horror and the trauma of forced migration and um, there are many texts in Ezekiel that are hard to read and continue to be hard to read and like the marriage metaphor and the violence that is inscribed on the woman's body um, and um, but the book also at the same time uh, has uh, powerful images of healing and restoration like the um, the the dry bones valley narrative in chapter thirty seven and the new vision of the temple that that inspire um, a sense of hope um, and I I think it would be wonderful for readers and listeners to approach the book of Ezekiel with um, uh, hermeneutics of suspicion to raise questions about it but also hermeneutics of trust to see how it could inspire new hope. Um, and um, the notion of covenant of peace that is prominent in chapter 34 and 37 is such an important vision that I our world needs um, um, that like the people of Israel in, in chapter 37, sometimes we feel we are hopeless, we are cut off, and we have um, um, theological, anthropological, articulation and a vision of uh, bringing life into this uh, dead body that um, rep represents hopelessness and brings hope to a hopeless um, world. You often use the term mothering in your study with the O in mother and mothering parenthesized and capitalized. What does the term signify? How does it help us understand the book of Ezekiel? Yes. Um, so the context of um, in which I use that terminology, which is related actually to a lot of um, work done by theorists in monster theory. Uh, but I want to mention the psychoanalysis work of Julia Kristeva, who talked about um, the notion of the abject. 
And the abject is the thing that um, we um, wants to, we want to get rid of, um, but yet it's something that is so intimate and so close to us. And as much as we try to get rid of, we cannot. So Julia Kristeva followed the work of um, uh, the psychoanalyst um, Lacan and who talked about uh, the mirror stage. And the mirror stage um, is a stage in the process of constituting subjectivity uh, in the conscious of um, the, the child. So the theory is when we're born, the infant does not have a sense of self, but rather their self and sense of self is merged with the mother. This is why we, they, and in my book, I also use this language of the mother with the M in parentheses, because according to Lacan and Kristeva, through this mirror stage, as the child constructs their sense of self, their subjectivity, their I, their identity, they, they project an otherness on the mother. And the mother becomes this first other. And that was kind of like an interesting um, piece to think about in, uh, in relation to Ezekiel, again, because of this shared sameness between the child and the mother. Because in my argument, I argued that Ezekiel portrays Egypt as a monster because of the shared sameness, because of that loss of sense of identity. And, and, and again, like... If readers read um, um, chapter four, where I talk about uh, the notion of idolatry and the notion of the metaphor theory of uh, the, the metaphor um, of adultery, where Ezekiel is actually saying that Judah or Israel were actually taken out of Egypt, um, where they were unable to abandon the Egyptian gods. So there was a loss of identity. There was like shared sameness, which is similar to um, this uh, notion of uh, the mirror state where there is no sense of self for the child from the mother. And then through the mirror stage, the child starts to construct an otherness by, uh, by distinguishing themselves uh, from the mother. And the mother becomes the first other and the child constructs its subjectivity. So Ezekiel in some ways makes Egypt the abject that like the mother, this other that needs to be separated in order for the self, the I, to be constructed. How does your research reinterpret the book of Ezekiel's representation of Ohola and Oholiba? Yes. Um, so these two names are uh, representing Jerusalem and Samaria in Ezekiel chapter 23, where Ezekiel, again, uses the marriage metaphor in order to speak about the breaking of the covenant between Yahweh and um, Jerusalem and Samaria. And this is not the first time Ezekiel uses the marriage metaphor. He uses it in chapter 16, more specifically about Jerusalem. And it's really important for us when we read these chapters to engage with feminist approaches who problematize the way Ezekiel and masculinity is constructed, but also how 
violence is um, is being done and performed on the female body. So it's really important to be cautious because of the sexualized violence that is used in these two chapters. Um, in chapter 23, one of the things that I uh, try to highlight that other scholars kind of noted but did not uh, connect it with how Ezekiel speaks about Egypt as a monster, which is similar to actually how I speak about the notion of idolatry also idolatry also in chapter 20. Before um, Samaria and Jerusalem, Ohola and Oholiba, have a relationship with Yahweh and called to be Yahweh's people, they were in a relationship with Egypt. And Ezekiel again uses this illicit sexual relationship to talk about that. So... And the text keeps on repeating the word there in Egypt, which again, this is different than what we read in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we have no mention of worshiping Egyptian idols. We have no mention of um, uh, Samaria and uh, Jerusalem entering into this love relationship with uh, Egypt, but rather it's in the book of Exodus, it's oppression, it's enslavement. So Ezekiel kind of rewrites this kind of uh, history in order to make his point. And his point here is that when God called Israel out of Egypt in chapter 20, Egypt and Israel had a shared identity. They worshiped the same gods. They worshiped the same idols. And Israel did not leave the Egyptian gods behind them, but they rather continued to worship gods in the wilderness other gods in the wilderness and also in, in the land, which goes back to the monster theory that the monster continues to haunt. The monster is never completely obliterated. It's resurgent. It keeps on coming back. Same thing in chapter 23 with Samaria and, uh, and Jerusalem. Uh, Samaria and Jerusalem, as these two women, they fall in love with Egypt. They have this illicit relationship Yahweh takes them out of uh, Egypt, enters into a covenant with them. But then they, even when they enter other political alliances, which is portrayed as adultery with Assyria or Babylon, they always go back to Egypt. They always go back to Egypt. They always go back to Egypt, which again connects with this idea that I, I, I'm trying to highlight where Egypt as a monster, as an embodiment of religious and political chaos, for in Ezekiel's discourse, is not left behind. It keeps on coming back. Yes, Israel physically was removed from Egypt, but Egypt keeps on haunting like the monster, keeps on um, um, resurfacing, keeps on coming back to threaten the relationship between Yahweh or the Lord and Judah and Israel or Samaria and Jerusalem. So we see this kind of like pattern that keeps on uh, appearing that initially there was no distinct identity for Samaria and Jerusalem. They had a shared identity with Egypt and that even though they were removed from Egypt, Egypt continued to haunt them like the monster keeps on coming back. How does your study reinterpret the rivalry between Babylon and Egypt referred to in the Bible? During the time of Ezekiel, um, I tend to uh, see Babylon as the superpower. Um, and 
and that can be uh, supported by the fact that Babylon defeated Egypt and Assyria in the Battle of Carchemish, and in some ways inherited the power of the Assyrians. But at the same time, the relationship between Babylon and Jude, uh, Babylon and Egypt was also complex because the Babylonians uh, tried to conquer Egypt. And according, according to uh, the Babylonian annals, they were unable to conquer Egypt, unlike the Assyrians who uh, controlled all of Egypt. So it's really interesting that you have sometimes within the relationship between Babylon and Egypt, Babylon seems to be the, the dominant power the superpower of uh, the ancient East that is trying to hegemonize the, the ancient East, including Judah and Egypt, but then they fail to uh, conquer um, um, conquer Egypt. So does, does that, does their inability to conquer Egypt uh, say something about the book of Ezekiel? I think it does. Because one of the ironies, as I mentioned earlier, the book of Ezekiel does not condemn Babylon, unless one reads Gog of Magog as a code for, which is chapters 38 and 39, as a code for Babylon. Ezekiel condemns Egypt for resisting the empire, for resisting Babylon, condemns Judah also for resisting the empire, which is really ironic because we usually tend to, to idealize the prophets, but we also have in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in other prophets, the empire is being used by Yahweh, and that needs to be deconstructed because people can misuse that and say, we're the empire, God is on our side. Back to Egypt and Babylon, there is a, something that is really interesting that appears in chapter 29, the end of chapter 29 in Ezekiel. So Yahweh promised uh, Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon, to defeat Tyre. And Tyre was not defeated after a very long siege. So Ezekiel 29, verses 17 to the end of the chapter, talks about how Yahweh will give Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar for his service to Yahweh and in place of his failure to capture Tyre. Which is, I mean, like, I find this, I find this really to be fascinating because, again, this this notion of like, so what what do we make of this? Like, you have the divine involved in this, like, imperial discourse, like, you know, uh, granting the empire uh, more land and more territory, and when the empire fails, then Egypt becomes this kind of substitute which we also know that that at least according to the Babylonian uh, chronicles, they did not capture people, so uh, capture Egypt. So it, it raises questions about the accuracy of the prophecy, <laughs> and it also raises questions about the involvement of the divine in imperial discourse and the resistance to imperial discourse. How does your study shed new light on King Zedekiah as he is presented in the book of Ezekiel and in the Bible more widely? Zedekiah is um, seen in a negative light in the book of Jeremiah and in the book of Ezekiel because of his attempt to enter into um, a movement of resistance against the Babylonians, um, where um, the small nations uh, in the Levant 
um, would create an alliance and likely were supported by Egypt um, during um, uh, Pesemeticus II, who toured the Levant in order to um, um, kind of support that um, um, rebellion against um, against the Babylonians. And similar to the whole discourse around Egypt uh, and all of Judah in, um, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, King Zedekiah as a representation of the nation is portrayed as someone who is rebelling against Yahweh. Again, because of his um, uh, rebellion against the Babylonians and um, breaking a covenant with the Babylonians and not entering or maintaining that uh, covenant or treaty or political agreement and alliance with the Babylonians, but rather trying to resist the Babylonians and allying himself with Egypt and the other nations. So he's portrayed in a negative way. And again, the prophets are to be read um, like, I would say, uh, any history writing or referencing history. They are representing historical events and historical figures through their own lens, through their own perspective. So um, it's really crucial for us when we are engaging these biblical traditions to realize that uh, the prophets or the deterministic history, they are not talking about these events in a vacuum. They are not talking about objective uh, history. They are talking about these historical events and historical perspective and from an ideological perspective in which they saw the decision to enter into a political alliance with Egypt against Babylon as a mistake. And therefore, they interpreted theologically, condemning Zedekiah, condemning Egypt, condemning Judah as a rebellion against God, God's self, not just against Babylon. What new light does your study shed on the depiction of Sheol in the book of Ezekiel? Ezekiel has a lot to say about death. Um, and again, uh, because of... Um, that trauma that he has experienced and the warfare that he probably had witnessed. And, um, and again, we see that in like the, the chapter six, where the bones and body parts are all over the place on the mountains and around the altars and in the vision of the dry bones, the value of the dry bones. Again, all of this, has to do with death. So no wonder Ezekiel would have um, an oracle related to Sheol. And that appears in the context uh, of his discourse against Egypt in chapter 32 uh, is one of the prominent uh, passages. And one of the really interesting things there is, um, is to remember that Sheol or this underworld or the netherworld um, for People in ancient Israel and the ancient Near East, this was um, the end, right? So we don't have a sense of life after death um, uh, prominent in early biblical traditions. We also um, can treat it as a mythological geography where um, it's kind of the polar opposite of the known world. It's the polar opposite of um, the place where the deity would dwell. It's the polar opposite where um, life and memory and um, 
honor and and the like would uh, be present and uh, we see that in various places so what is striking about ezekiel is that in ezekiel 32 beginning with verse 17 ezekiel speaks about you all in a very complex and nuanced way so he doesn't just treat it as a grave or just as a place of uh, where the dead is gathered he after the defeat of Egypt as a monster in chapter 32 and the dismemberment of the body of the monster um, and leaving the body of the monster for the birds and the wild beasts to eat it and devour it, Ezekiel proclaims another oracle in which he sends Pharaoh. Again, um, was a representation of Egypt here into Sheol. And when Pharaoh goes into Sheol, Pharaoh is not gathered with his own people, which is crucial in an ancient Israelite context where death in an honorable way would have meant being gathered with one's own people, being gathered with one's own ancestors. But rather, Pharaoh is joined with other nations. Pharaoh is joined with other heroes. And Pharaoh does not occupy the place of the honorable ones. So Ezekiel also, in his portrayal of Sheol, creates this kind of stratification in Sheol, where, yes, everybody dies. But you know what? There are, Ezekiel would be saying, there are, there are heroes who died of old who occupy the center, that this honorable space. But there, but there goes Pharaoh with these other nations um, who come from different places and different eras and different times, and they occupy the periphery. Uh, which is, again, goes back to this monster theory. So not only is Egypt defeated, and uh, not only is Egypt defeated, but Egypt is put at a mythological distance from the land of the living, which contrasts with how Ezekiel then later speaks about the valley of the dry bones. Because unlike Israel that died, if you wish, using this metaphorical language at the time of the exile, uh, and said, we are cut off and we are hopeless. And then Yahweh brings uh, um, sinew on them and flesh and skin and spirit and revives them like a mighty army that is very, very great. In chapter 37, Egypt dies and goes to Sheol. And not only at a large mythological, cosmological distance from the revived Israel, so it would not be a temptation or a threat to Israel, but also even in Sheol, Pharaoh will occupy the periphery. Pharaoh will occupy the, the farthest spot in Sheol. But one last thing to be mentioned here, Sheol is not only a place where Egypt is kept at bay, away from the living Israel, but she all, and not only that Pharaoh occupies the periphery, but there is a very interesting verse where it seems like Pharaoh is coming to terms with his own reality. Pharaoh maybe will change his mind there. So there, there, is, there seems to be some sort of possible transformation for Pharaoh, for the monster, for Egypt, maybe. Uh, in Sheol, where um, they would realize that they should they should not rely on their own power. 
So maybe she all or this recognition of death and marginalization and being kept at bay, maybe has some, maybe a glimpse of hope, of recognition for Pharaoh and for Egypt and for the monster to come to terms with the chaos that they perpetuate. Maybe they will stop it. Maybe they will stop acting in this chaotic and destructive way. How can your study of the book of Ezekiel bring Muslims, Christians, and Jews together in dialogue? One of the things that I wrestled with in this book has to do with um, what makes the monster a monster. What makes the other a monster? And the implying question that um, we need to ask ourselves as Christians, Muslims, and Jews, people of different ethnic backgrounds, is what kind of monsters do we create and construct of the other? And why do we portray the other as a monster? What kind of fears are we trying to project on the other? What kind of boundaries have been transgressed by the other? What kind of boundaries are we transgressing? What kind of fears are we perpetuating in the other? What kind of destruction do we wish on the other? What kind of destruction does the other wish on us? And this notion of what makes the monster a monster is an invitation for us to actually reflect on how we construct ourselves in relation to the other. When we operate out of fear, when we operate out of binary opposite in which we just see the other and the monster as one and the same, the only avenue that we think is we ought to pursue is uh, destruction for the other because the other is only seen as a threat. But if we switch and shift the ways we think about the other, in which we think about what is shared, what is common, how, do, how can I humanize the other and not portray them as a monster? How can I think of myself also as an other to someone else? And possibly that kind of invitation might help us to start to deconstruct the fear that we project in the form of otherness and uh, the hatred that we project in uh, the form of monstrosity on the other and the violence that then we pursue in order to get rid of the other. So my hope is that by reflecting on why we think this particular group are monstrous, when we reflect on that process and our own way of constructing the other as a monster, that will make us pause and confront our fears and come to terms with our fears in ways that would help us discern whether this is a real danger and the other is actually acting monstrously and destructively and therefore we need to protect ourselves, which is a very important aspect to discern, or are we projecting an unreal fear on the other? That we are just acting out of self-interest. We're acting our, out of our own trauma. We're acting out, out of our communal memory 
that has essentialized the other as a threat. And therefore, we need to deconstruct that portrayal of the other as a monster and start to see the other as a self. Because I could be an other, a monster to someone else who is also a self. So we need to create a dialogue in which we are able to speak about our fears and our longings for healing and transformation. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about the work you've done subsequently to completing this book? Is there anything you're working on now that you can share with us? I'm working currently on a commentary on the book of Exodus for the interpretation series. And um, obviously, this continues the same question that I have um, started a long time ago when I uh, started my journey as a scholar of the Old Testament, reading from a Christian Egyptian perspective. Um, obviously, the whole commentary will not, it's not like a monograph on how to read the book of Exodus as a Christian Egyptian, but there will definitely be parts there in the commentary that engage Christian Egyptian perspective. And I hope that my perspective will bring in new insights as we read this ancient, uh, but uh, uh, relevant and powerful text that of the book of Exodus. And that would also continue to generate conversation between uh, Jews, Muslims, and Christians. Um, I um, have published uh, commentaries in Arabic on the book of Joshua, um, Exodus, and Ezekiel, and also um, have written a book called Intercultural Church, um, uh, A Biblical Vision for In an Age of Migration, which, by the way, also continues my interest in the question around the other, uh, but in relation to migration. Uh, so um, I remember someone once asked me, so what... Uh, unifies your sense of scholarship. And uh, the answer that came to my mind was uh, this question around how uh, do we understand ourselves and the other as we read scriptures. Amazing. This is remarkable work. Thank you, Thank Ari. you for undertaking it. Thank you, Ari. And thank you for having me. It was my blessing, my privilege, and my honor. Thank you so much. As we end our dialogue today. I am your host on the New Books and Biblical Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. Safwat Marzouk. We have discussed his recently published book, Egypt as a Monster in the Book of Ezekiel, published in Tübingen, Germany by Moore Seebeck 2015. Dr. Safwat Marzouk is Associate Professor of Old Testament at the Union Presbyterian Seminary. Thank you wholeheartedly. Thank you from the bottom of my heart.